0: Welcome to episode 20 of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? As this is the special Belmont Stakes edition of In the Ring today. We're getting ready for the final jewel of the Triple Crown. It's nice to see, as I've mentioned a couple times on this show, the Triple Crown back in its traditional order, back on the calendar where things belong. And while we don't have a Triple Crown up for grabs this year, we had two different winners of the Derby and the Preakness. I think it's almost kind of better that way, as we kind of catch our breath. We are back into the groove of things with Triple Crown season, and uh, like I was talking about with some of the media members yesterday at the Belmont Stakes post position draw, uh, as I'm. Recording this on Wednesday of Belmont week. It was almost kind of like we had such a long time in between triple crown winners when American Pharaoh broke through with that victory. Then just a few years after that, we had justify. So it's almost kind of as much as you love the triple crown season and you wish for a triple crown winning horse, it's almost more special when it hasn't happened in a while. And you remember just how difficult it really is to win not only one of these triple crown races, but to win all three of them. It's a tremendous feat as this year we will, not see any horse that has run in all three legs of the Triple Crown. A lot of the runners in the Belmont skip the Preakness, and horses that ran in the Derby and Preakness are skipping the Belmont. So it makes for, I think, a pretty wide open, interesting race. We have the Juvenile Champion, Essential Quality, the Preakness winner, Rombauer, and a couple of others uh, that are very intriguing coming into the 153rd running of the Belmont Stakes. So we're going to do on this show a little reflection as far as the Belmont Stakes is concerned, and And also looking ahead and talking with an owner breeder of one of the major contenders. So hope you enjoyed today's show as always. And we get ready now for the final leg of the triple crown. And then we are full speed ahead with all the two year old races and yearling sales coming up this summer. Saratoga will be here before you know it. Just a reminder. I'm very pleased to welcome in now the one and only Jack Knowlton of Sacatoga Stable. Of course, they had last year's Belmont Stakes winner in Tis the Law and a lot of success throughout the years. Jack, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Well, as I said last year, Belmont was, uh, first of all, it was the first leg of the Triple Crown. It was a wild year and I know kind of crazy because you all weren't even able to be at the track for Tis the Law in the Florida Derby and the Belmont Stakes, but just take me back to that year and and what 2020 was like for you all with having a horse like Tis the Law.
1: Well, it was something that I never thought uh, would happen again. Mm-hmm. I- You know, absolutely believed that, uh, you know, having funny side was a once in a lifetime opportunity for, you know, a small group of people and uh, one that uh, only buys New York breads and doesn't spend a lot of money doing it. And uh, then, uh, you know, when he won his maiden race at at Saratoga as a two year old and Barkley and I decided to to take the plunge and, and go right into the grade one champagne at Belmont uh, he rewarded us. And, uh, all of a sudden, you know, unlike in the funny side days, you know, he came in under the radar, but once we won the champagne, you know, Tizala was, you know, near the top or at the top of most people's list of potential derby candidates. well so Barkley and I plotted out, uh, you know, what we thought would be a, a path to get us back to the derby. And, uh, you know, everything, uh, worked, we got to the to the Holy Bowl, we won that in in good fashion. And then the pandemic hit.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: You know, everybody's plans disintegrated at that point. And uh, it was really, you know, a a challenging time, we fortunately did, uh, you know, have the the Florida Derby, I think we were all on pins and needles, whether or not Gulfstream was going to be able to stay open. But uh, miraculously, they did. And I have a condo about uh, a mile away from Gulfstream and uh, you know, was not uh, you know, able to go over to the track, see the, see the race, uh, again, uh, a very, very nice win. And that you know, set them up for what we thought was gonna be the first Saturday in May. Well, the world changed. And uh, instead of the first Saturday in May, it became the first Saturday in September. And we really had no idea for a few weeks you know, when the next race was going to be, where it was going to be, you know, what were they going to do with the Preakness? What were they going to do with the Belmont? And Barkley did just a great job keeping him in form. And uh, then we found out, well, the the next race is going to to be a a shortened Belmont. And, uh, you know, again, uh, no fans, no owners, uh, nobody could be there. We had uh, about half of our ownership group at a party at Penaud's restaurant. Mm-hmm. Bruce Sarone is one of the uh, owners at Tesla Law, so we had a ten out, and uh, we celebrated uh, with NBC being there. Uh, his win in the in the Belmont, and you know, I know that uh, there's an asterisk, as there needs to be, but. Uh, think anybody who saw the race that day, that race would have been a mile and a half. He would have probably mm-hmm. won by more than he won uh, going the mile and the eighth. So we felt, uh, you know, it, it being out of order and, uh, you know, being a, a little different than uh, normally is, it still was a, a top-notch effort. And, you know, he's a deserving Belmont uh, winner. And incidentally, that uh, took us 17 years, but Sakatoga Stable mm-hmm. and the Tag finally got their triple crown. So that was, uh, you know, a real good feeling for all of us. Then, of course, uh, you know my my hometown track and, and favorite track, Saratoga. They moved the Travers to accommodate uh, the fact that uh, the Derby was going to be the first Saturday in September, and the best race of his career uh, at uh, Saratoga in the Travers. And, and fortunately, we were able to have about 15, 18 of uh, the Sacatoga partners to actually see that race live. And my only regret was we didn't have 50,000 people cheering because it have been a crazy day with a hometown horse Mm -hmm. and a a New York bred winning the way he did. And that, uh, you know, got us to the Derby and uh, is a big favorite. We, you know, had, felt coming out of the, the Travers and the way he ran and the way he trained after the Travers that uh, he had a great chance to win. And mm-hmm. unfortunately for us, uh, you know, he ran into a horse that day in Authentic that, uh, you know, didn't let him go by in the stretch. And uh, he'd been doing that all year. And uh, it was, still was, uh, you know, a, a notable effort, but uh, a disappointment, of course, that uh, we weren't able to, to win our second derby and then uh, went to Breeders' Cup and just, you know, ended up in a situation where the race didn't go the way we had hoped that it would would go, and uh, it was really the only time that he'd ever had an off-the-board finish. Unfortunately, although we had planned that he would run as a four-year-old, he came out of that race and into training with uh, some severe bone bruising and The vet said that you know, really, the responsible thing to do would uh, would be to retire him, and we had already made arrangements with uh, Coolmore and Ashford Stud in Kentucky to stand him as a stallion, and he just went into uh, his new job a year earlier than we had hoped.
0: Well, sometimes. Things happened that way, as you well know, you know, being in this game for a long time, we always talk about it, the highs and the lows of it all. And I think Tis the Law kind of encapsulates that. Pretty well, um, but you mentioned the his Travers win, and I have to say, I think that was probably my favorite day of racing in 2020. Just the excitement. I mean, people obviously fans weren't allowed back at the track yet, but people were lined up at the horseshoe, you know, over on the backside cheering, and everybody just so excited to see a horse like Tis the Law be successful there. How important is it to you that he's a New York bred as well as Funny Side was?
1: Well, we, uh, we're kind of the poster children of uh, the New York bread program. We have arguably the the two most successful uh, New York breads. Nobody, uh, you know, other than funny sides won a Kentucky Derby, which is a race that everybody that's ever involved in racing, uh, you know, hopes to, to be able to win. And, uh, and Tiz is the only New York bred to win four grade one stakes races. So... You know, we're we're excited. Uh, You know, we got involved in New York breads because we didn't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. The first horse that uh, Sacatoga bought back in 1995 after five of my high school friends and I formed Sacatoga Mm -hmm. was a $22,000 New York bread. And we just carried that on knowing that, you know, we weren't a group that was gonna have a lot of money to spend and that the opportunities in a New York bread program are phenomenal. Back in those days, it really didn't, uh, you know, take a lot of money to, to get a, a decent horse. You could spend, you know, $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 and have an opportunity. That obviously is, has changed now, but uh, by and large, the New York Bread program with all the stakes races you have, with the opportunity to run against New York Bread through your conditions and the purses being what they are, we feel that uh, it's the best way to, to play the game at the level that we play. And, we've been very fortunate to, you know, on two occasions to have it take us right to the top of the sport.
0: It says the law cost just $110,000. And as you mentioned, the journey that he took you on and you still, I think um, with the success that you've had, have been so great at kind of finding those diamond in the rough, so to speak, um, that are at the lower end of the spectrum. What are some of the things that your group looks for at the sales when buying horses that you plan to race in your colors?
1: Well, you know, Barclay Tag and Robin Smullen mm-hmm. are our stock advisors. And uh, that's part of uh, the relationship that we've had through, you know, better than 25 years now. So, first thing we look at, uh, and, and that's kind of about the only place that I get involved, quite honestly, <laughs> other than raising the money to pay for the horses, is looking at the pedigree. And, you know, one of the things that, that Barclay is, is very adamant about is. He wants to see black type. He wants to see stakes winners in that first and second generation of the dam. And uh, then, of course, uh, you know, looking at uh, you know the horse physically, uh, he and Robin will go to the sales and see the horses physically. And uh, they have you know countless things that they like or don't like about horses. They see their walk, how they walk, you know, the conformation. So that uh, plays a major, major role in what we buy. And then Barclay has uh, vets that uh, are very, very thorough. And uh, first thing we do is make sure that, uh, you know, they have a a throat that uh, is is such that they're going to be able to breathe and we're not going to run into issues there. And then of course, they, uh, you know, look at uh, the vet looks at, uh, you know, the the x-rays and make sure that uh, you know, everything is good there, but that's, Kind of what uh, what our process is. We don't uh, you know go out and hire bloodstock agents or anything else. It's really you know the decades and decades of experience that Barclay and Robin have around horses that give us our guidance.
0: Now it was a unique experience with Funny Side because he was a gelding. Tis the law, as you mentioned, retired to stud duties. Do we think we'll see any babies by Tis the Law wearing the Sakatoga colors in the future?
1: Well, we, uh, we certainly hope so. Okay. We, uh, we know that, uh, you know, there are some, uh, that are going to be New York brats, uh, <laughs> Joe McMahon who, uh, bred Funnyside. Uh, he actually bred one of his mares to him. And, uh, so down the road, uh, that certainly is, uh, is one of our goal. And then, uh, one of our partners, uh, they, uh, took the breeding right that they have, and, uh, and they bred uh, to a horse that uh, Jimmy Bond has in uh, Saratoga. Nice. So uh, I know that, uh, you know, there are those two, and I've, I'm, I'm told that there are a number of others. So they will absolutely be on our radar screen as soon as uh, they're on the ground. And whether it's gonna be, you know, weanlings or yearlings or two-year-olds, uh, Saratoga will definitely be taking a look.
0: That's very exciting to see too. And uh, I love seeing, you know, now obviously with us being able to have more people back at the track, seeing all of your partners assembled, how great is that for you in getting to share this sport with the number of people in the model that you have for Sakatoga Stable?
1: Well, that's tremendous. I mean, that's something that has kind of evolved over time. As I mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, we got in the game with uh, five partners, there were six of us. By the time we had Funny Side, the, the number was ten, and uh, that took us on uh, you know a journey that uh, never in my life thought could be uh, close to being duplicated. But uh, last year, uh, in the fall of uh, his two-year-old year, Tiz took us on uh, a somewhat similar journey and uh, accomplished so much. We have grown. There were uh, 35 people that had an interest in Tiz. Which was tremendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of new people, a lot of the veteran Sacatoga people, and uh, we just had a tremendous time. Success uh, breeds success, and uh, we have since grown to uh, over eighty partners in wow. Sacatoga and the various horses that we have. And right now we have uh, nine horses in the in the stable, uh, plus one that's going to be retired. and uh, it's about double what we've ever had, but there's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, people have seen that uh, Sakatoga, you know, not only has had uh, some success at the higher levels of the game, but in, in all ways uh, we have a lot of fun and we get to the races and uh, people enjoy themselves. They meet other people that are horse lovers and love the game. And uh, that is just, uh, you know, taking us to kind of a, a new level. We we bought a couple horses last year, you know, approaching the three hundred thousand dollar mark. That uh, is, is well above anything we've ever done before. Mm-hmm. Maybe a one-time thing. That was what I like to say. That was his money talking. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll we'll see how that works out. But we we just bought two uh, fillies, uh, two-year-olds at uh, the sale in uh, uh, Timonium. Uh, I'm, I'm blame. Philly, that uh, you know, certainly we think is a kind of horse that uh, mm-hmm. should be able to run all day, and a Canarthos uh, Philly that uh, should be a speed either turf or dirt. So we're excited and hopefully going to be able to unveil them and a couple of our other two-year-olds at Saratoga this summer.
0: Oh, we cannot wait to see that as we're getting closer to the start of the Saratoga meet. And Tis the Law was by Constitution, uh, who was under the radar certainly as a stallion at that point. Um, I know that you mentioned Barkley and Robin have such a huge role in the sales, but are there particular pedigrees or stallions that you've become a fan of or that you tend to kind of find yourself being drawn towards a little bit more?
1: No, I mean, we're quite honestly, we're, we're looking at, uh, like they, they, they say in the NFL draft, best available athlete, you know, as long as it's a New York bred, you know, Typically, we'll we'll have an open mind about uh, you know fillies or, or colts. Now we're a little over now with Phillies. fillies. So when we go to the sale, the yearling sale, at Saratoga this summer, we'll probably focus on, on getting a colt. Uh, you know, maybe a, a couple of colts, depending on what uh, prices look like. But you know, when we looked at Constitution, I mean, he's the son of Tappet. Now mm. obviously, he is a tremendous uh, sire. And uh, Constitution, although he had a short career, uh, had a very successful career. So we thought that uh, you know it definitely uh, was was worth taking a taking a shot. And again, it was a hundred and ten thousand dollar purchase. It wasn't uh, you know one of the, the real expensive horses. So I think we've proven uh, that you know you don't have to spend a lot of money to have a horse take it to the top of the game. And uh, you know, even, you know, when we spent about, you know, 290 and I think 300,000 for two horses that we bought in the thoroughbred uh, game, that's not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Given, uh, you know, what we see a lot of people are spending.
0: You mentioned buying some two-year-olds at the recent two-year-old and training sales, yearling sales coming up. Do you have a preference? Do you, or do you maybe get a little bit more excited about kind of the, uh, the diamond in the rough, so to speak with the yearlings or prefer kind of going on with the two-year-olds right away?
1: Well, we've, we've had one of each. Uh, <laughs> this side is a two-year-old. Uh, he was already a And Tony Everard and uh, who had new episode training center in Florida uh, he was a good friend of Barclay's, and, and Barclay went down and stopped and saw him in, uh, in December of, of 2001, and Tony had bought Funnyside for 22000 at the Saratoga New York bread yearling sale.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We were at that sale, and we did not buy him, and we bought another horse at that sale. Uh, sometimes in life, you get a second chance. <laughs> Tony said to Barclay, I've got this you know, nice New York bread. I know that you've got guys that uh, like New York breads uh, I want to get 50,000 for him. And, you know, we didn't have money for buying a $50,000 horse back then. So Barkley went back up to O'Cal in January and Tony said, you know, I'm, I'm liking this horse even more, but I'm now I got to get 60,000. And, uh, we didn't have that, but we did have a, a horse that Barkley had had one of his owners sell to us. Uh, Barkley wanted to take the horse to Florida. It was a turf mare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he said, I know that we can make some money with this horse if you go to Florida with her. So we did that. She ended up in a 62.5 claimer in February and uh, ran second in the race. All of a sudden, we had uh, money. And by then, uh, Tony wanted $75,000. <laughs> That's 75000 I think anybody has ever spent.
0: I would certainly say so. The investment, I think, uh, definitely came back to pay dividends with what a journey he took you on. And Jack, you know, you've won the Derby and Preakness with Funny Side, the Belmont and Travers with Tis the Law. What else would you hope to accomplish in racing? Because like they always say, you're, you know, you're always looking for that next one, right? What What else are you hoping you'd like to have uh, added to the resume for Sacatoga Stable?
1: Well, you know, we've, uh, as you say, we've, we've accomplished uh, an awful lot. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to win uh, some more of the big races in, in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. Ran second in a wood. So with with funny side got beat by Empire Maker, and uh, the Woodward uh, would be great. Mm -hmm. I mean we've we've won the 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 Champagne, we won the Belmont, we won the Travers, we won the Jockey Gold Cup. So I'd 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 like to you know, and I'd like to win the Whitney, probably more than anything else. And and that was what I was hoping, and we would have put our you know planned our whole season around the Whitney with, with Tiz that uh, winning that at Saratoga would uh, would be fabulous just to get a horse in there I'd be be very happy to to run Uh, the Woodward is another uh, great race and uh, and a Wood Memorial so you know we've still got some some great New York races and uh, it would be fun if we uh, you know were able to check a couple more boxes there.
0: I love how much you all support New York racing, and I hope to see your silks uh, in the starting gate for some of those big races soon. Jack, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Enjoyed it very much. You take care. Thanks.
0: Very happy to be joined now by John Fradkin, owner and breeder of Preakness Stakes winner, Ron Bauer, who's getting ready to try his hand at the Belmont Stakes. John, we just concluded the Belmont Stakes draw. Rombauer Bauer in post position number three. How are you feeling leading into this weekend's Belmont?
2: i uh, feeling reasonably good. Uh, nothing wrong with the post. Uh, I think if I was asked to pick what post do you want, I might have picked three. So I got no complaints oh, yes. there at all.
0: All right. I like that. Well, uh, we saw Ron Bauer, of course, an upsetter in the Preakness stakes. And I think your story with him is really interesting because you and your wife, Diane breeders, who typically sell your stock. Tell us a little bit uh, as to why Ron Bauer is still racing in your colors and you didn't end up selling him as a two year old.
2: Well, I I guess you got to thank the pandemic for that. Um, (laughs) you know, it was basically because, uh, the OBS April sale last year was greatly delayed and at one time looked like it might even be canceled. And so, uh, Eddie Woods advised us, uh, you know, maybe you should just run this one. He looks more like a racehorse than a sale horse anyway. And I'm not, I don't have any confidence of the sale coming off. So that was sort of the plan to, you know, run, him, maybe win early and maybe sell him um, after, you know, some success at the track. And then, uh, we got that second lucky break when uh, the clock wasn't functioning properly at Delmar, And, uh, you know, he won pretty impressively on uh, going one mile on the turf. But uh, the time was kind of lousy. And I thought his come-home time was great. But even that was a little suspect with the clock not being right. And, uh, you know, there were no offers after the race because uh, the initial buyer number was uh, 48. And, uh, you know, nobody pays big money for a horse that just ran a 48 mm-hmm. buyer. So that was sort of a lucky break because, you know, we might have sold him if there was a nice offer after that. And then uh, when, uh, you know, it was Michael's call to try him on dirt. And uh, he said, uh, you know, the grade one American Pharaoh is coming up a little light. source is of training pretty well on dirt. What do you think? And, you know, I said, sure, let's do it. You know, there was no heated discussion on that one. We yeah, uh, I <laughs> you know, was like, yep, let's do it. And, uh, you know, he, he ran second and uh, it was a good second. And uh, there were some fairly big offers after that race too. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess after having run three times, you know, it was, it was, you know, once a horse was run three times, then, you know, I, I kind of know what I'm looking at, at mm-hmm. least to some extent. And, you know, he had done a couple things that were pretty special. And um, I guess, you know, we decided to keep them, um, you know, the fact that he could do turf, and I, you know, I hand-timed that race, you know, many times. And I think he really did come home in 2292, which is mm. unheard of for a first-time starter mm-hmm. in July of his two-year-old year. So that that really left an impression on me. And then the fact that he, you know, hit the board on dirt in a grade one. Um, so it seemed to me like, you know, there might be something special there. And uh, I guess, you know, gut feel was saying maybe, you know, don't sell, don't sell. And, mm-hmm. The, the biggest offer was, was from somebody who was going to move the horse, and Michael wouldn't get to train the horse. And, right. And that didn't feel right. And, and uh, so, anyway, we didn't sell. And I'm glad we didn't, since, uh, you know, we're going into the Belmont Stakes with a competitive horse that's, uh, you know, he's ranked number one in the NTRA polls, which blows me away. Um, mm-hmm. I, we always thought he liked the distance. I'm a little concerned about him bouncing. Um, mm mm-hmm. It's only three weeks, and it was a gigantic performance. But uh, yeah, we got to do this, and uh, I feel reasonably good about it.
0: Yeah, they're only three once and um, obviously made the right decision not selling with getting that Preakness win. But we'll circle back to the Preakness and and leading up to that race and his his race record in a bit. But I wanted to talk about his pedigree because you've really had your hands all over the family in the bottom side. The second dam, Ultra Fleet, kind of became your foundation mare from what I understand. a, A New Jersey bred. Tell me a little bit about her and how you opted to end up breeding her.
2: Yeah, well, that was just luck. I mean, uh, she, uh, yeah, she was a magical mare. Uh, yeah, we acquired her very early in my whole racing, you know, education and endeavor. Mm-hmm. You know, we bought her as a yearling, Keeneland uh, September Sale, 1993. Uh, she was a skinny, scrawny little uh, New Jersey bred mm-hmm. and uh, our bloodstock agent was uh, used her as an example of a horse that was um, correct up front. He was teaching me how you know, the bones line up, and, you know, she was confirmationally correct, there there were other issues, I didn't realize how small she was, he never mentioned that, but, you know, just when he was teaching us, uh, that happened to be the horse he used, or one of them, and so, when the horse came through the ring, I just kind of thought it'd be fun to bid on a horse, I didn't really think we'd get her, but, you know, I think I was the only bid, and we got her, and uh, we did the early horse thing, and, you know, breaking training, gave her to our trainer, Ron Ellis, and, you know, she wasn't much of a racehorse. Um, she ran, I think, four times, never did better than six, and we retired her and made her into a broodmare. There was no great reason. I mean, everybody advised us not to do that, um, but we did it anyway, and um, I guess that sort of brings me to, uh, I was thinking about what I could possibly talk to you about. Um, that was interesting, and, you know, I, I kind of think that uh, a breeding career is a whole new discipline uh, for a horse. And uh, the relationship between uh, racing ability and the ability to produce uh, successful racing progeny, it's, it's a pretty loose uh, connection, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's there, but I don't think it's uh, – it's not a uh, – there's, there's, uh, there's a relationship, but it's, like I say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anyway, I think a good horse can come from anywhere. And, okay. uh, you know, Ultra Fleet has certainly proven that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think more mayors probably should get an opportunity to, uh, try their luck in the breeding shed. And, um, you know, on the stallion side, it's never going to happen. I mean, you're, you're mm-hmm. not going to be a stallion unless you had a great race record, but, um, there's probably a lot of geldings that would have been great stallions, but they never, yeah. they're never going to get the chance. And, uh, so anyway, um, that's sort of my outlook on that. And I think that, uh, you Know, if you're a really good race mare, you're obviously going to have every opportunity, you're probably going mm-hmm. to get bred to the better stallions, and, and you will have your shot. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen. I mean, um, you know, look at Zenyatta, yeah, uh, it's a good example of a horse that was the best race mare, big, you know, gigantic. And you know, you'd, you'd have to say, as much as I love Zenyatta, you'd have to say she has failed as a race mare. Mm-hmm. And you look at Ultra Fleet, and the exact opposite, a little tiny thing terrible racehorse and she was sort of a magical um root mare and perhaps um her daughter cashmere is also awesome. they're not all magical mares in that family it's a great family the old, what i call the ultra fleet family i mean it's a great family it's been a lot of successful racehorses but there are only a few of them that are kind of like magical mares and um, i think cashmere is one of them i think Cambio corso was one maybe oh the- yeah
0: she's incredible
2: Agreed. yeah yeah And her daughter VNA probably was gonna be one, but you know she she died after only two foals. Mm -hmm. So anyway,
0: well, amazing to see what Cambia Corsa accomplished as far as she's the grandam of Roaring Lion, um, which is amazing what she was able to accomplish. And I thought you brought up such an interesting point, and we see this so often about these great race mares who are heralded um, as kind of the next best thing as far as becoming brood mares. And it is, it's a very different piece of the industry and piece of the sport. And you've now been involved in this for a while. And you mentioned getting opportunity. Was there something, and maybe Ultra Fleet is not the example, but maybe some of her offspring in the family that you've, you've had with her. Is there something that you think, does stand out maybe it's genetically or physical or a mental that will be a key to you of oh wow this horse may make a good broodmare
2: yeah there, there kind of is and, and i'm i'm um maybe an outlier on this but i think how they move is the most important thing and um i don't think it's their size um i think if a horse is a good mover there's a good chance she's going to pass that on to her mm. and you know, if you're looking for value perhaps in acquiring broodmares and you don't want to, you know, spend, obviously a race mare who made a million dollars is probably a good mover you know, That's that's, that's, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to pay a lot for that horse. Mm-hmm. But say you're looking to acquire some broodmares at the lower end of the spectrum and you don't want to spend much money, you know, what do you acquire? Uh, I'll probably never be doing that, but if, if I was to do it, I think I'd be looking for, uh, you know, maybe the, uh. The two year old in training, uh, sail topper, or you know, somebody who was obviously a really good mover, but maybe got injured and never even ran or only ran once. Um, those horses aren't going to bring a lot of money, but I think they'd have tremendous potential uh, to be a good broodmare.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And Kashmir, the dam of Rombauer, never did race. You bred her to a Twirling Candy and end up with a Preakness Stakes winner. Tell me about that decision and how Rombauer came to be as far as choosing uh, that breeding matchup.
2: Oh, I suppose that was a fairly low risk uh, breeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've been following Twirling Candy. Um, You know pretty closely and he was he, he was look he looked like he was doing pretty well you know he was in the same crop as uncle mo who started off really with a, a real bang it's cool off a little but he's still you know you still have to say oh, uncle mo is one of the best stallions in the world and he totally mm-hmm. was in that uh you know that group of stallions and uh so he kind of was a little under the radar probably people didn't notice him quite as much but uh, i always noticed him and I don't know what crop we're in, but I want to say maybe it's sixth or seventh crop. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot less risk. Um, You know, that's one thing I think uh, breeders in general um, ought to be looking at fifth and sixth crop stallions. Mm -hmm. There's probably the best value there relative to the risk. Um, Sixth crop, especially, you know, you've seen the three-year-olds run already. So you've seen their two-year-olds and their three-year-olds you've got a pretty good idea, you know, if they're going to make it or not. And, you know, the, I'm sure the stud fee is not going to be tiny, but it's it could still be on the way up. And um, I think that's kind of how we caught Twirling Candy. You know, he's pro- his trajectory is probably still up. Um, and, you know, I, I guess after, you know, we've been doing this a while. Um, <laughs> bred our first mayor in 1997, so it's at uh, 20 four years, and, you know, we probably have an average of two mares, sometimes one, sometimes three, but let's say it averages two, so, you know, in theory, that would be 48 foals, but you don't really, you know, they're not, you don't get pregnant every year and have a foal, mm-hmm. so maybe we've bred 40 foals, and, you know, there's just been a lot of mistakes made, but I, I would say that, you know, for my program, I probably ought to be, you know, either breeding twirling candy or somebody... <laughs> or sixth crop where I've got to look at what um, you know what they've produced already and that's you know I'm a numbers guy I like to look at the numbers mm-hmm. on first crop stallions they're really popular but we're all just guessing and yeah. I've made so many mistakes there I mean stallion farms should be paying me not to breed to their first crops <laughs> down and uh, but you know it, I think breeders in general are sort of guilty of breeding for the marketplace I mean breeders, mm-hmm. As a whole, breed sail horses, not race horses. I mean, some sail horses are race horses, but I think breeding a good sail horse is probably more important to most people. And, you know, it, it's weird, but everybody loves first crop stallions. Mm-hmm. And as somebody once told me, you know, nothing sells like big and pretty at the sales. And, uh, not only big and pretty, but big and pretty by a first crop stallion. That's what sells. And uh, mm-hmm. so you can't fault them. I mean, you know, uh, if you're breeding from the marketplace, uh, you know, that, that is a good way to go. It's been proven. And I think people in this business tend to be optimistic. You know, myself mm-hmm. and I mean, we're always look. That's one thing I really like about the business is, is that there's always something to look forward to, you know, whether it's a, a race or a sale or a mm-hmm. the, the foal. You know, we tend to be optimistic, and I think we tend to think that the new racehorses coming off the track, who are the new stallions, are going to be the next Northern dancer, and everybody's mm-hmm. sort of ditching to. you know, we remember the horses, and we remember how great they were on the track, and we project forward that they're going to be great stallions. And the marketplace um, you know, pays up for that doesn't mean it's right, but that's, you know, that is what goes on. And so I think that breeders are sort of guilty of of doing that maybe a little too much. And that that brings up another interesting point. Um, I'd like to see more statistics on breeders. Um, You know, breeder stats are kind of few and far between. Yeah, that's Um, true. I think that when a buyer goes to the sale, you know, on that pedigree page, you know, maybe there ought to be some breeder statistics, and for people who've been doing it a long time, uh, or the big farms, you know, it could be it could be interesting, and I think it might force breeders to, uh, you know, change what they what they do if if they look at their stats and they're not that good. So, not that long ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, maybe within the last couple months, I don't remember exactly where I saw it, but it was a fascinating. Um, list of the top breeders in the US, just the big guys. Um, But it showed like, you know, starters, number of starts, um, starts per starter, how many wins, uh, total earnings. And I think it was the the metric they used to rank them was dollars. I think it was average dollars per start. Mm. Another good one would be median dollars per start because, you know, one giant stakes horse could throw the average way up. But anyway, it was a list of maybe the top fifty, and of course we weren't on the list because we didn't have enough folds. Uh, but I went ahead and calculated our numbers for last year, and um, and see, you know, looked at that list compared to our numbers. Our numbers were really good, and that was before Rombauer, you know, made a lot of money. But uh, I remember that our number. I wrote it down Here's my notes. You know, we averaged eight thousand nine hundred and sixty-nine dollars. Per starts on the forty-four starts that the seven horses that we bred that are out there running—that's what they average. And that figure was pretty good. It, it, it yeah. you know, it, was, it wasn't as high as the Gunthers, it wasn't as high as Belmont, but it was—it was higher than most people. Most of the big dogs, I, I'd say we were in the top twenty percent. And uh, that's a type of statistic that I think should be out there, and I think would help buyers. I think it would help breeders too.
0: And it's a very interesting point. I mean, you think about trainer stats, jockey stats, they are in your face every time you turn around and how they're doing, where they're standing as far as the meat does go. And that's definitely a piece of information. And there's so much information in racing, but that's something we really don't highlight. And I think that's interesting. And it has to make you very proud that your breeding operation, um, is stacking up to some of those big dogs, like you mentioned. And of course now kind of a marquee horse out there running when you first got involved in the game, John, and, and claimed horses at the beginning, did you ever think that you would be so entrenched in it, in the breeding world like you are now?
2: Um, No, of course not. (laughs) You know, we kind of stumbled into that, but, uh, you know, we do enjoy it. And, uh, Mm -hmm. It's been a rocky road at times, uh, you know. When you when you only have two mares, in some ways it's riskier than if you had ten mares because if you have mm-hmm. ten mares, you're probably going to get at least one or two good ones every year, right? Um, but you know, sometimes you don't get two good ones or any good ones, and that might go for a while. So you know, a lot of a lot of it, I don't know. A lot of people have been um, saying, "Wow, you know, this guy sure got lucky. They only have two mares." But you know, we've been doing this a while, mm-hmm. and Even with two mares, you know, the the bills get pretty big. I mean, people don't realize with two mares, you could have, you know, say in the spring like now, you could have two foals on the ground and two yearlings you haven't sold yet. And you could even have two two two-year-olds you haven't sold yet. Maybe you got two racehorses that you never sold and two (laughs) retirees that you retired. And all of a sudden you're paying for 13 or 14 horses and you got 20 grand a month going out the door. And that has happened to us at times. I mean, we usually have between eight and 13 horses. That's our herd you know, that we're paying bills on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes it's it's a few years in between a good sale. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's the life of the small breeder if you uh, mm-hmm. choose to go that route.
0: Watching a horse like Ron Bauer and the success that he's had, I know – um, speaking to you and your wife, Diane, at the press conference after the Preakness, that you said the El Camino Real Derby was, was like your derby. And then adding the Preakness to that, and what's that journey been like? What's that excitement on the track seeing that horse that you bred in your silks in these big races?
2: Oh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, that, yeah, that was Diane's line. That was a pretty good line. Yeah. That was our, we won our derby, yeah, from El Camino Real. <laughs> um, it's really exciting. Um, you know, I follow this sport pretty darn carefully for a long time and you know I suppose when you when you gamble on these big races uh you you know you you usually there's usually one horse you're cheering for and it's kind of your horse anyway so we're we're, the mentality of you know this is my horse I'm really cheering for him that's not that different you know um you know when California Chrome was running that's the the only time we went to the Belmont Stakes Uh, and uh, we were cheering pretty hard for him you know of course. But, you know, this isn't that different from a, but it, but it is financially, of course, Mm -hmm. but sure. It feels great. It's awesome to see our silks out there. And it's awesome to see the wind vane on the cupola Mm -hmm. and crazy hot pink colors. (laughs) I see that, but it makes me smile when I see it.
0: I can imagine. And I know it's been, a a bit of an interesting year for racing. I think the last couple of years have, and you and I chatted about this a little bit, and you've been involved in the game for a long time, and I did want to give you some space to kind of discuss some of the things that you've learned, and you have continued to bring up some fascinating points that I think we just haven't really seen discussed much in in your background as being a breeder, being a better as well, and the state of racing right now, I think, is a, a pretty common topic, but if you were to weigh in on some of the things that you feel like you've really taken away, especially the last year or so with racing, what would that be? And what are some of the things that you'd like to see improve in this game, John?
2: Well, I think that, um, we need leadership and I'm not blaming anybody because, you know, we've created an environment over the years where people can't really make changes. There, 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 uh, there are too many things in place that restrict change from happening. And, uh, you know, we're moving in a direction where we're going to get some federal oversight, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we need, we need to compare ourselves to other major sports out there. And, you know, we need some organizational structure. We need basically a, a commissioner of baseball, if you will, you know, baseball has a commissioner, right? Well, we need a commissioner, you know, um, We often say we need a czar. And, you know, that seems to be colloquially what people call that. And I I guess, you know, I would like to see this business thrive, not just survive. And I think we tend to pat ourselves on the back too much and say, see, we're still relevant. We're still surviving. It's not that bad. But, you know, what kind of goal is that? I mean, I, I I think we should set up this business to really thrive and um i want you know more owners to be in the game i want more gamblers to be in the game Mm -hmm. and it's so doable and uh i think you know if i think you know i I tend to look forward more than backward but Mm -hmm. let's just look backward for a second and um let's pretend it's uh 1995 and or sometime in the mid 90s and and uh are you, are you familiar with the, the show uh shark tank sure okay let's say we're the sharks and All right. uh, there's two people coming in to to uh you know display an idea you know All the right. first guy comes in a guy named jeff he, and he says you know i've, I've got a bookstore I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this bookstore on the internet and i might sell other things somewhere down the road what do you think Next, you know, and then then the horse racing guy comes in and says, "You know, we're gonna uh, we're gonna do internet gambling, legal internet gambling over the internet on horse racing, with no competition for the next twenty five years." Mm-hmm. Which one would you have picked?
0: Absolutely. I mean,
2: I, mean, I think everybody would have picked horse racing, mm-hmm. but look what happened. Uh, of course, I'm alluding to Amazon, and mm-hmm. their great use of the internet. And horse racing is, you know, we're, we're behind where we were in 1995, I would say. And uh, I think our use of the Internet has been minimal and not encouraged. And we need to change that. I mean, the Internet changes everything. Yeah. And uh, we need to adapt. Um, you know, this business should have changed dramatically, and it hasn't. And, um, you know, it's time to do it. So I guess if I was czar, if I had ultimate power to do anything, First thing I would do would be to tear up all the existing contracts. Just get rid of, them. let's start from scratch. Let's build this ship, you know, from where it should be to go forward and use the Internet. And, you know, I would lower takeout dramatically. I mean, dramatically. I think 4% is about the right level for the Internet age. And I think this business could be 100 times bigger than it is. And uh, I know some people are probably laughing right now, but I really honestly... That and I think that, um, you know, it's an experiment that's just never been done properly, and it's we've been hamstrung, but it's it's economics 101. You know, if you remember, um, microeconomics, elasticity of demand if you lower prices, does total revenue go up more than enough to compensate for it, or is it inelastic? Which means if you raise prices, do things get better? Is does total revenue go up? I think this business is so elastic it will blow everybody's mind. And, um, you know, but it's going to take the major tracks to, to try it. And I don't think, you know, lowering it 1% or 2% is, is the answer. I I think it has to be dramatic. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, how do I know that? I don't know it for sure, but I really feel it. And there was a time when I was able to, uh, to gamble in my own account at an 8% takeout. And, uh, It didn't last for long, but there was a time when that happened. I was one of the first rebated players in the state of California. I was getting like Mm -hmm. a 6% rebate. And they told me, you know, we want to watch your account. We want to see how, you know, your play improves to see if this is, you know, if this is worth doing. And so that's kind of stuck in my mind. I don't know if it was BS or not, but I wanted to make a good showing. And about that same time, the pick five came out and that hit Mm me, right? I love that bet. It came out, I think, when Delmar opened in two thousand eleven, to make a long story short, for a period of time, I was playing with an eight percent takeout, and my handle went up one hundred times, not not wow. one hundred percent, hundred times, like ten thousand percent, and um, that was my experience. I was I was winning, so you know it, it was you know you, you bet more when you win, right? And mm-hmm. I had a little edge, but that edge didn't last that long. Um, but anyway, that was my experience. So it's a sample size of one. But nevertheless, um, there are a lot of people out there, I think that their handle, their annual handle could easily go up by 100 times. And it won't be for everyone. But I think, you know, we got to get this sport into the national consciousness again. And um, it kind of has fallen out. And uh, we need to, you know, correct. that. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. But it's an internet gambling business now, and we need to treat it as such. We need to think bigger and stop marketing like it's 1970. I mean, I I hate seeing these ads where it's come to the track, come to the track, come to the track. I mean, does the NFL do that? Does the NFL say come to the football games? They don't need to. And we should get our sport to the point where we don't need to do that. People are going to come anyway. If it's a big sport and everybody's playing at home, they're going to want to come. And I'm not worried about not enough fans at the track. Um, I think we should, you know, try to get them to play our game. And uh, all bets should be treated the same with regards to uh, how much goes to purses. And you know, the horsemen should not be disadvantaged by bets coming in through ADWs relative to mm-hmm. on track. That's just silly. I mean, we should encourage all bets and um, they should affect, you know, purses the same. Um, we need to make sure the rules are the same in all states. Get rid of state control. Let's, let's you know, have the level the playing field, both for, you know, the trainers and the gamblers. Um, two more things and I'll stop. But <laughs> at one minute to post, all wagers need to be cut off. You know this 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 thing where wagers can go in at the last second. It's just it's a, it's a bad look, and you know odds going down you know during the middle of the race. It's a bad look, and we need to get rid of that. And it, I think if if we just, if it just becomes common knowledge that one minute to post, no more no more wagers are accepted, people will get used to that. It'll be like no big deal. Mm-hmm. And I want to see a record of all will pay combinations um, av- available right after any multi-race pool is finalized. So like I'm, say I say a pick five, um, even if there's 80,000 possible combinations, I think after that pool locks, there should be a record of what those will pay combinations are. It's going to be a giant file, but you know, it's a computer, it's computer generated, but people should be able to, you know, go somewhere and find it. And I think that would really go a long ways uh, towards the, betting, um, security, insecurity, uh, you know, thoughts that go through people's minds. Mm-hmm. Because people do believe that um, there are hackers that are capable of anything. You know, I don't know if it's going on or not, but, you know, it worries me a little. And if it worries me, it's worrying other people, and it's keeping them from playing as much as they should. So why not fix the problem? And uh, anyway, i probably rambled enough, but those are some <laughs> of the things I would do if I was czar. <laughs>
0: Well, I wanted to end on one point because I, I appreciate what you've shared and some concerns that you have for the game or some things that we think that you could be done better. But um, as we've heard you say, you are a player, and we need those who bet on racing in order for the sport to function. How do you kind of market it, share the sport? What are some of the things that you share with people that you're trying to bring into your game, whether it's your friends, the colleagues, saying, hey, horse racing is great. You should come and bet on it. What are some of the things that you think are a draw?
2: Well, like I say, there's a lot of feel good moments and, um, you know, there's highs and lows. The highs are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it allows you to, to practice uh, strategic decision-making, which is not available in a lot of life. You know, I think mm-hmm. you know, when you go to, when you go to business school, they teach you, there's three levels of decision-making strategic tactical, and operational. And in our regular lives, you know, you don't really get to do the strategic stuff too often. You know, you you know, those are the big picture decisions. Um, maybe if you own your own company, but even those decisions might play out over many years. So it's very satisfying to make the high level strategic decisions and get it right. And, um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've we've gotten lucky on Ron Bauer, and I think you know it, I'm feeling that. So it's fresh in my mind, but it's it's a it's a way of doing that. And I think that there are a lot of people out there, um, especially retired guys in their 60s, and they enjoy they um. There's a lot of guys that are sitting in front of computer screens every day managing their stock portfolio, and. To me, those are our potential customers. They, you know, if you asked them, they'd say, I'm investing, you know, I'm, I'm managing my investments, but you know what they're really doing? They're entertaining themselves because they're getting to make decisions. It's fun. And if you, you know, if you gave them a couple cocktails and got them talking, I think they would admit <laughs> that they'd actually be better off just putting their money in the S&P 500. They probably made more money <laughs> if they didn't manage it, but they're having fun. And that's mm-hmm. what they do. They spend their time staring at the stock market, and you know those are our potential players. They would probably have a great time playing our game, but they they don't they barely know our game exists. And uh, you know we, it's time to fix that. So,
1: anyway.
0: Well, finally, I have to ask because I am a wine lover. Ron Bauer, tell me about the wine association with the name and choosing that name for your horse.
2: Ooh, I hate that question. Oh no. Um, Yes, there is a winery up in Saint Helena. We love their product. Um, they did uh, they did send us a case of wine after the Preakness, so they seem uh, relatively uh, friendly and on board with uh, giving them some free publicity. But uh, my attorney has advised me to uh, to let you guys know that uh, I used to have a dog named Bauer when I was a kid, and uh, perhaps the horse is named after the dog.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. Best of luck with Ron Bauer, named after your dog, in this weekend's Belmont Stakes.
2: Thanks, Acacia. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's it. Another episode of In the Ring, in the Books, episode 20. Put a little check mark next to that. Next week is episode 21. My podcast is old enough to get a drink now, but I digress. That was my stupid, corny joke. Don't pay any attention to that. Um, but I really enjoyed doing this podcast each and every week. A big thank you to my guests today. Um, it was fun talking about a variety of, of topics. Wishing the best of luck uh, to the Fradkins with their runner Ron Bauer and the Belmont Stakes. And how can you not smile listening to Jack Knowlton tell stories about Funny Side and His The Law? Just want to give everybody a quick reminder uh, from our friends LTN Global, which offer initiative, innovative excuse me, TV production services that help racetracks raise their profile bringing all the TV tricks they've learned from other sports into horse racing. LTN is a technology and production company that is helping racetracks create and distribute content at a high quality and good value. And LTN offers distribution services to get tracks seen in more online and offline spaces than ever before. Visit LTN at global.com to learn more. Also, just a reminder, hope that you are subscribed to the In The Money media newsletter. There is tons of good stuff, especially leading up to this Belmont Stakes as far as wagering, the stories, uh, my colleagues putting out some great work with those podcasts and video elements as well. So make sure you are subscribed to the newsletter. Keep checking out things on In The Money media. And for now, i will see you next time on In The Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thanks, everyone.